Hello and welcome to another edition of Doing Things Better and Doing Better Things. Um, this is a really, well they're all really lovely aren't they? But this is a particularly lovely conversation um, with a guy called Alex Lawrence. He's a, he's a bartender. He's been voted, rated one of the best bartenders in the world. He is based um, with the Mr. Lion business, so he was at Dandelion um, and at Cub. He he works beyond that. He's got his own gin brand and he is um, held up as one of the most insightful and I guess one of the one of the leaders in, in the bartending industry. I met Alex a few years ago on a piece of work I was doing for for Coca-Cola. Um we've remained really good friends actually, way beyond way beyond work. Um we share a lot in the way that we see the world. And he is um he's a really interesting guy. And 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 actually one of the nicest, kindest people I've spent time with. Um, I'll say no more. You you took into this, and um, I'll talk to you again afterwards. Okay. Um, right. So I'm sat in a um, sat in a really beautiful coffee bar. Actually, somewhere in, is this Shoreditch? Yeah, kind of Hoxton. Hoxton. Yeah. Somewhere in Hoxton with Alex Lawrence. Alex is. Um, I met Alex about eighteen months ago now, um, and it's a really interesting story about how we met, which we'll, we'll talk about in a second. Alex is one of the best bartenders in the world. Um, has worked at the best bar in the world. Has his own gin brand and knows more about bartending than probably anyone else I've met. Actually. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm very good at fronting that, but yeah. No, it's true. Alex, tell me about yourself. Um, so I'm currently the, the global bar director for a company called Mr. Lion. Uh, I've been in that sort of side of the industry for the last. But nearly 10 years, and um, yeah, I'm sort of the creative director for, for the gin brand Porter's Gin, uh, soon to be Glasshouse Whiskey, uh, and a couple of other little projects that we've got going on. Um, so that's kind of me professionally, but yeah. Amazing, Glasshouse yeah. Whiskey. Yeah, so I mean, it's kind of all under wraps at the moment, but we are doing a, like a blended Scotch whiskey that's kind of trying to challenge the category of what people look at whiskey and like, like what is it for, you know? That's brilliant. Yeah, it's good fun, man. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, that's A, and we'll, we'll get on to where you're going and what you do for a living. But I'm picking up Edinburgh. Yeah, I'm, I grew up in Edinburgh, yeah. Yeah, tell me about growing up. So growing up was like, I, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't uh, put the life that I've lived uh, to my character nowadays. Um, I grew up quite a small family um, outside of Edinburgh until I was about eight then I, I went to, to boarding school when I was eight in central Edinburgh um, and I mean it, it was it was a very rewarding experience in terms of my education you know I'm, I've been very lucky to be blessed with, with that side of things but then also like very challenging to feel not necessarily repressed but certainly like I wasn't meant to be in that world you know it, it's a very not stereotypical, but it's a very structured kind of path you're meant to take. You know, you're meant to do really well in all your curriculum. You're meant to be sporty. You're meant to be a straight A student, and then you, you know, adhere to these like fairly conservative views um, and lifestyles. And it, it was quite stifling creatively, which kind of like it drove me to be a little bit rebellious, definitely. Um, 
and kind of seek something more. So I was doing all sorts, but uh, what were you doing? Well, you know, I didn't go to school all the time, put it that way. And then I ended up towards like the end of my, my sort of school years, uh, kind of manipulating the system to the best I could to just go and enjoy myself, you know? I wanted to hang out with like, I guess like the creative kids or the kids that frankly just didn't give a fuck, you know? Um, and all the kind of the childish experimentation and things like that, like that, that all occurred. And to be honest, it was healthy because you learn a lot. But I was walking on two sides of life, you know, because I had that kind of upper class school atmosphere. I, I wasn't necessarily from an upper class family, but then I was like mostly hanging out with like the most degenerate people I could find. And, like, and Edinburgh's beautiful for that. It's gorgeous, yeah. You've got both of those things like but we're a street apart, not even a street apart, cheap by jowls. I mean, it's a village. Um, but yeah, it, it was particularly challenging trying to figure out who you are as a young individual um, and what you want to do. But that's probably why I still follow the conventional model where I, you know, I got a place at university and studied a degree that I frankly did not care about. Um, and I went and as soon as I'd left that house and I, I moved to Aberdeen of all places, um, I think I went to university for like 21 days. And I went, fuck this. Because <laughs> there's, no there's no one telling me what I can and cannot do anymore, like, kind of finally. Um, so, yeah, still took the student loan for a while. Yeah. Um, got a little job in retail and then realized what I really wanted to do was music. So, that was like my primary focus. It's like a sort of really young adult, you know? So, my next question was going to be. Um, what did, what did your childhood taste, smell, and most importantly, sound like? What kind of music were you listening to growing up? Well, I mean, like, my sound like, started where I got passionate about music, maybe, like, 11, 12 years old, you know. I was listening to, like, dabbling in things like, like metal and whatever, but then when I started getting actually, like, really moved into music, and more importantly, the culture around it, it was, like, stereotypical bands, but still, like, you know, things like Nirvana. So, you know, that got me into, like, 90s music, and then... It also got me into that 90s culture that was, it was, well, late 80s, early 90s, but it was, it was punk, but it wasn't obnoxious, yeah. you know, it was like people that didn't care, they were going to do what they want ever, like lifestyle-wise as well as creatively. Um, so yeah, I mean, my childhood was Nirvana, and that's kind of where that kind of attitude to being like, I'm an outcast, I don't belong here, fuck you everyone, right, you know, and it was, it was almost like a bit cheesy, but um, there, there was comfort in that. And did you feel that? Did you genuinely feel like you didn't belong? Yeah, like, there was, you know, you was, I had good friends, I didn't have loads of them, but I didn't really even connect with, like, a wider community until I started being the controversial one. So I, like, I kicked out about everything, you know what I mean? And, and I, I thrived off that attention from being alternative. And, like, that, that was kind of interesting, because I, I feel that, although I've become a lot more mature about how I go about these things, like, that's never really gone away. Like, I've always wanted to try and do things differently uh, and kind of challenge the norm of what everyone else is, is saying you should be doing, you know? Um, Has that become a habit? Do you, do you now, if offered, if offered two choices, one is more normal but probably more sensible and one is crazy and out there but, but actually probably isn't going to work for you, do you, do you then... Do you choose the out there one, and then do you feel confined by that, by that definition of yourself? I think like as you grow older, you become less idiotic with your choices. But I, I think if I'm still presented with something that sounds a little more scary and exciting, I, I'd probably still go for that. Um, 
I've, I've definitely not grown up enough in loads of areas of my life but then I feel because the choices are like fuck it let's do it like I've, I've got so many of these great growing experiences as well as stories you know like great you've got a couple of wild stories that's fine but then what what did you take from those experiences yeah. as a person and to view the world in that way like that's that's what's so exciting about taking the path that's maybe like not the most sensible you know don't get me wrong I've got a lovely support network and you know it took a while for like even my immediate family to kind of accept what I'm all about. But you know, they're very supportive. I've definitely had to get bailed out in a few situations. Well, I was going to ask about that because um, I'm really intrigued about the interaction between between people and their parents, and particularly people who who who, who rebel, who don't necessarily fit in. How did um, how did your slow in your slow rebellion or the beginning of your rebellion how did that go down at home I mean it was it was pretty well hidden and well I thought it was I think they probably knew something in the song but um, listen like it, it's weird because my parents at the time were you know they fat like fit into that sort of um, conservative model of like a private school parent you know um not because that's where they're from. I mean, my dad was like an East End boy from London that was a military man and like came from nothing and went, went to Arsenal to get him. My mum was from a really like well-off, like kind of controversial conservative family and been around like luxury and private school and whatever before. But you know, they were just trying to like form like this, this is the best education of a boy can have and you know, we're paying all this money and uh, so of course there was kickback, a lot of, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't really until I left school it started being like, oh, okay, you're just doing what makes you happy and, and you're actually trying to be a good person at the same time. So, but when it first went down, there was like a lot, you know, like when my mum found out I was stealing her cigarettes, like it was like the fucking end of the world, you know, <laughs> it's such a small thing. But then gradually these little hiccups became less and less of an issue. And, you know, nowadays, you know, unfortunately my dad passed away, but like my mother and I had like a painfully honest relationship like there is there's nothing that's really hidden and like that that's really healthy that's good and you can actually see the growth happen to them as well that they became more accepting of the world and they were a bit more like open i mean there's definitely things like you know my, my father was a traditional military man i was never going to get him to quite be like completely open about the world but he was a lot better and slightly less offensive towards the end of his life <laughs> and um tell me your parents love story because that seems um I won't say an odd match, it doesn't seem odd, but it doesn't seem like a natural match. No, 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 you're totally right. And listen, my dad was 16 years older than my mum. I think they met when they were, my mum was in her early 20s. And she, she was kicking off the same way that I was, slightly less controversial, so to say, but in her own little way. So, you know, she'd done private education at Fetty's College, which I also attended until I was 16. Um, she then went to finishing school in Knightsbridge. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're yeah. painting this picture. Um, and then eventually it was like, you know what? I'm going to be a flight attendant, fly all over the world, and like, explore a bit. Uh, and she met my dad on a plane. He's, you know, she's in her early 20s. My dad's in his late 30s. He's already had two marriages, um, four kids. Like, but he's just this cheeky, like, hilarious cockney that was taking the same flight that she did from Edinburgh to London periodically and he just chatted her up like um, and it I, I, I mean it, it's always the same story with them like why how did that come about it's like because your father makes me laugh like that was just the premise of the whole thing and he was he was a funny dude but uh, which I kind of I like I mean 
they always had like a very strong relationship so that fun like was always very present in my life so conventional relationship like that I grew up thinking like that's that's exactly what I'm heading towards I mean it's not the same anymore these days but the uh it was it was inspiring to be around because the rest of our family is a fucking train wreck. <laughs> so so there's this one like beacon of light amongst like you know. I mean? <laughs> so you have brothers or sisters? I t- I've got two, two. Sorry, um, I know you have. Do you yeah. have with, with from your mum? Do you have any brothers or sisters? No, so I'm the only child from from mum, and then I've got two half sisters who are considerably older with their families in Glasgow and um, Manchester, and then. I, from the first marriage, I've never met my half-brother or my half-sister. Like, Intrigued? Uh, the half-sister reached out, turned out to be like a bit of a cunt, excuse my friends. I know, um, I don't care, go for it. And then the half-brother, like, no, I'm not really. Like, no. it's, uh, it was nice having the, the half-sisters in my life, they looked after me a lot. And, you know, we're, we're not the closest, but like, there's a lot of love there. So, yeah. We just don't, we don't see each other as often as maybe we'd both like, but we're all of a different generation anyway, and like, I'm, always off doing my thing and they're doing their thing and like, yeah. like I don't feel like I'm missing anything there, you know? So, what, so what's the journey? So Aberdeen is an odd place, I mean, I, I've been to Aberdeen a lot and yeah. it's it's not my favourite town <laughs> and I can't imagine why you'd go to university there. I followed a girl, mate, um, classic, um, which, which is funny because like given like, who I am now and I, you know, in my head, I mean, we actually broke up before we went up, but you know, straight A student, you know, a head girl of an own girl's school, like, she's now a doc- doctor, married to a doctor, put it that way, it's, you know, like, not, not ended up being on the same level, um, but yeah, so I followed them there, and honestly, I just had, like, my best mate, who I ended up playing in a band with for a good number of years, like, he was there, so, like, that's what kept me there, and, you know, like, you're pissed for eating like noodles and just drinking pints and just being a total riot. Aberdeen's quite good for that, you know? I, I was in Bradford and equally, actually. Yeah, equally. Just, just to be like a young trash bag, basically. But then, uh, not a lot of culture, obviously. Um, so I was there for six years. Uh, yeah, and that, you learn a lot about like community and like sticking together or whatever. But one of the biggest takeaways upon reflection is like how uncultured and unopen sort of the northeast of Scotland is, you know, like there's there's not a lot of diversity in any section, you know. Um, which being in London now, you know, for again, I've been in London nearly five years now, right? It's quite eye opening the first couple yeah. of years. Like, Completely. It's not like the rest of the UK. No. No, no, no. And that, that's why I love about it so much, yeah, you know. Totally. And even to the point where I'm very proud of being Scottish, but if people internationally especially ask me, Oh, where are you from? I say I'm from London. Because I'm a Londoner, because you don't have to be born here or to be English, or, you know what I mean, to, to be part of the community. But, uh, yeah. but a lot of people still think I'm from Aberdeen. So, on my like, bios and whatever, they're like, oh, yeah, because you know, you did the gym in Aberdeen, so you're from Aberdeen. I'm like, I'm absolutely not. From <laughs> <laughs> Love all my Aberdeen family, but like, that is, but, yeah. Not, it's it's, a, change, it's yeah. a change town, city now. It's. Um, now the oil money's going, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, which is great because creative arts and culture um, is on the up, you know, and like the music scene became important for the young people anyway. Like when I was there, like punk and rock was quite big, but now like 
they're listening to a lot more, I, I guess, electronic music. But the club nights up there, like, are, they're worthy of London. Are oh, they? Yeah, they're packed. Like, the vibe's really good. The DJs are great. That's interesting. And they, but it's young people doing, like, escapism up there because, like, it's shit. Like, and then you go and you have this, like, belter night on a Friday. And it's, it's almost got that, like, 80s sensibility of escapism. And we've discussed this before, actually, but, like, we're getting to the point that people just want to have fun. Yeah. And Aberdeen, like, for, for a small and, you know, like, lack of diversity, like, they, they know how to have fun. Oh, yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. And Dundee's booming as well, I don't Dundee's massive uh, in, in so many ways, because, like, low-end culture and high-end culture is booming in Dundee. And that's always been a creative city. I love it. It's, it's, it's I mean, Glasgow's probably my favourite Scottish city, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but Dundee's second, you know? Yeah. Um, tell me about the band. What sort of music did the band play? So, well, we did a couple of iterations, but then we always, we ended up on being, like, uh, it was kind of punk and metal. I mean, it wasn't wasn't great, but the the thing that attracted to me that whole thing wasn't just it wasn't actually necessarily writing the tunes. It was always performing live. So we always had this pretty intense live show that usually meant all of us were coming away with a few like cuts and bruises and um, scared a fair few people. But like we had like minor success. You know, we did some tours and what was the name? Grace. Uh, and it was it was yeah it was intense. And what did you play? I played guitar some of the time the rest of the time was just running around but yeah it was good it was a very nice way to get like a lot of like repressed energy and I guess like, I was in a, I've always been a pretty angry kid you know yeah. um, so that was a phase of my life where I could really like start getting that out and working through it like without actually sitting down and getting professional help which I definitely needed <laughs> like, <laughs> that's interesting I mean it, I mean we talk really openly about mental health and wellness and, and these things are a beautifully on an, on an agenda that's open now. Yeah. That wasn't always the case. No. And do you see music and, and, and art as some form of therapy? Uh, yeah, 100%. Like, I mean, anything creative. Um, and, you know, creativity can be like drawing a doodle, you know? It doesn't have to be... Like, people put so much weight on music and therapy... Uh, sorry, and art. Being therapeutic if you create something of no. But, like, ultimately, that's what... That's kind of just you wanting someone else to validate you, you yes. know? Like, whilst just having, like, putting something out and being like, I made that and I feel better because it's authentic to me. Um, that's what Brace was. Because, you know, like, all my, like, pals that I grew up in school, like, they couldn't even fathom metal music, you know? So they would, like, you know, I still get a good ribbon by the few people that still stayed in contact with. I didn't stay in contact with many people for very long. Because um, people just don't understand it, and you know, but if you were just true about it and were like, yeah, fuck you, this is what I play, and this is what I do, then it felt really good. So it's definitely therapeutic if you're authentic, but if yeah. you try and fake it, then it probably makes the issue worse. Well, and it's actually <laughs> really hard work, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know, I was working with someone um, today on um, presentation styles, and um, and they stood up and they gave a presentation that I would get them just to start, just talk, yeah. and it was. Inauthentic. It was. She. She was great. Yeah. But it was not really her. And then I just stopped her and said, "Tell me. Tell me about your childhood. Tell me. Tell me about your favourite food. Tell me." And I got. And then suddenly, she came alive. And interestingly, she became less movement. She wasn't running around the stage. Yeah. Because that wasn't a character. She wasn't a character anymore. But I saw inside her. And and I suspect, inauthentic anything, music, art. I suspect it's really fucking hard work. It's well, yeah, it's because you're you're painfully trying to calculate something. And like, listen, don't get me wrong, 
everything in the world needs market, right? You know, yeah. so if if you want to achieve something, you want to be like in a in a band that is commercially successful or or whatever. Like, of course, you have to think about the end product and have this sort of parameter of creativity. You can't just like go out and write like a tech metal album and expect it to be number one on the charts. But saying that's like not got number one last week, which is hilarious. Um, but you can still create authentic things within boundaries, you know. I mean, like that's that's my job these days. You know, I have the boundaries of what our brands are, and then I want to create authentic things within them. Um, so it doesn't have to be this like really free like I just do whatever I want. That that doesn't equal creativity either, you know. Um, you have that sort of focus, and you can have a goal of like other people approving that, you know. Like, I mean, I, I hope our bars are busy and people like them. I wouldn't just make drinks for me, for example, but uh, you can be authentic within the framework. That's kind of the gist of it. That's really interesting that is so authentic within within a frame, creative within guidelines. I love that. Um, so Aberdeen, six, year, six years? Six years, yeah. Band didn't make it, nearly made no, it? No, well, and, and it wasn't just that we weren't making it I mean like no band really makes it but the uh, it, it was a personal set of circumstances between all you know the five of us like one of them wanted to play a different style of music join another band that was considerably more successful and that that kind of created a risk there and then the, you know our our drummer um, you know had a beautiful fiance was really wanting to focus on family life he's now got like a gorgeous wee kid in basketball and like he's really nailed that and so at the time there was like a lot of bitterness between us, but then when you actually go back and look through it, you're like, yeah, this is great. Like, I'm glad that we did that together. Yeah. Um, and realistically for me, once that was done, I was like, I was a bit torn up about it. But uh, I mean, I'd been cocktail bartending by this stage for a year and a bit, and I was doing really well in that and really, really passionate about it. So it was kind of a natural transition to be like, okay, put all my energy into that. Um, and yeah, so I didn't. I didn't feel like I was lacking creativity or passion in my life. I could just fill it with another kind of focus. So it wasn't as much of a knock as it could have been, you know. Sure. Um, yeah. Do you like? Do you like constraint? Do you like the um, the fact that you were in a really? I'm going to use the word regimented. I have no idea if it applies, yeah. but a, a strict public school, a mm. private school. Um, you had to kick again against that. You were in a really. Unpleasant, not unpleasant, um, a, a, an oil town that, that, yeah. that didn't have a real natural scene. You, you had to kick against that. Do you need resistance in order to, to fire you? I think if anything feels easy or like goes too well, um, then then I struggle to motivate. I like I like a lot of chaos, you know. Um, but I, maybe not necessarily resistance because that can that can ultimately like stop you dead in your tracks if you're not careful and it can be quite challenging to seek that um, but certainly like I, I need something to challenge you know um, and that's what I try and do with like everything we're doing yeah and if it if it just slides in too easily like then it doesn't feel rewarding at all to a person, you know um, but certainly being challenged by boundaries or situations or culture or, or whatever and try and contribute towards those things positively, then yeah, that's that's what we're really getting. Yeah, yeah. So how did you, so you left Aberdeen, came straight to London? Mm. Yeah. So I I came down. I was doing bartending competitions. Um, <clears throat> there's a famous one called World Class. I got into the semis. It didn't do very well. But I, I walked into a bar called Dandelion um, 
it hadn't been open long, and I met a friend of mine, Aidan, um, who's still one of my closest mates since day, and one of the most influential people I've ever worked with. She's so lovely, and I sat down at the bar 1 p.m. on a Sunday, and I left at 1 a.m. when I had the competition the next day, and I'm staying at Aiden's house. So imagine to sit 12 hours in a bar, like you have to really love it. Yeah. Um, and I did. So I, had, I was like, this is the best bar I've ever been to, and I love it so much. Every single part of it. So I, I spent probably four or five months just begging Aiden. Yeah, you know, I was like, I'll wash the dishes. Like, I'll do anything you want. And I was like running by up north. So I had managerial experience. And after a while, they, they kind of budged and they gave me a senior position, which is super lucky, um, especially coming into your first job in London, working in a bar for the Mr. Lion Company. Like, couldn't believe it. But yeah, so they, they phoned me up like, hey, you can have a job, but you need to be here in two weeks. So that's when I was like, oh, like, I've not got a penny to my name. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do, so I, I sold like everything I owned. So dark cheap. So like all my music equipment, I had loads, you know, um, like worth a lot of money. And I just either gave it away or sold it because I had to fit everything in a car. And then booked like through an agency, which was dumb, like this little crack den flat in Dalston and just drove down. Yeah, that was it. Um, what did Dad say? He was like, yeah, go for it. I mean, they were both pretty scared, but like, um, they were supportive. And like, but he's East End boy anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, they were like pretty hyped that I was moving to London, but you know, I, it was all quite quick and quite rash. And um, I'll still like never forget, I actually drove down with a bunch of pals, like dear friends. And then when they, like we went for a night out, they stayed the night. And then it was sort of the moment when the door shuts and you're like, Shit, I live in London <laughs> and I don't know anyone here. Like I knew a fuck, like, you know a handful of people, uh, but that was like daunting. What year was this? So Dalston wasn't wasn't as dangerous as it had been in the past. No, it, and it, when it, I when I say like the flat was it was just because I booked this almost student accommodation. You know, I lived with students and like it wasn't great, and you know you just had like that lock on your door. And, yeah. I mean, it, listen, it was fine. I you had friends there, you had ready-made people to go out with. Yeah, at least, but I mean, we were on very different wavelengths, you know. There was one flatmate I got on with particularly well, and she was great, but like, they were all like students, young creatives and stuff, and like, you know, I had not had an ounce of culture for six years. So I'm like, quite overwhelmed by Dalston. Um, and you know, I, I did the classic thing, I just hung out in like cocktail bars and like kind of did that like really heavy industry like socialising. It's a shame because when I think about it, I was in an epicentre of really challenging culture. Yeah. But I also had quite a lot of work to do as a human being to to be like open to that and at least benefit from that culture. Because coming straight from Aberdeen, so, you know, like the, that's a little shell. Well, it's polar opposites, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So it, it's funny. I I moved to London in my placement year. Um, the plan was always to move back. People ask me where I'm from. I always say London. I'm not. Yeah. I'm I'm nowhere near. No. But I spend that much fucking time here. It feels <laughs> like I'm. But I rem- I'll always remember it was um my parents moved me down from my placement year to a house in Muswell Hill. Um and because this was a nineteen um. 1990 right and so it wasn't posh like it is now and I remember the same thing I remember them like waving them goodbye and shutting the door and thinking 
fuck. Yeah, what have I done? Now what, <laughs> now what do I do? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it was fine. And I jumped on my bike and I cycled to Covent Garden and I spent a half a day there. Then I cycled to Ali Pali and I spent half a day there. And then I cycled back to the house and my housemates, who I didn't know, were like, you did, you did Covent Garden and Ali Pali in one day. Well, yeah, I, was, I was bored. There was actually, there was nowhere lonelier than the heart of a big city. Yeah, big thing, yeah, I totally feel that. It took me like, it took me probably six weeks to stop feeling sad, actually. Yeah, well, I said first six months, like, that's the grind now, you know, when you move to a city like this, and, you know, we we have to talk people through moving to London, because we hire a lot from outside of London. Yeah. Um, you know, ambitious people from the north or from Scotland or whatever, um, and I, I'm like, listen, first six months are rough, like, just so you know, so whatever you go through in that first six, like, talk to people about it, but also know it's totally normal to feel yeah. this way, that you want to just chuck the towel in and go back, or, um, and yeah, I mean, the first three months for me, I reckon, were like, I, it, firstly, because I'd, I'd never worked at this level before, and I thought I had, you know, when you like, you think you've got this dialed. I was in that stage of my career. Now I realise I don't know fucking anything. But, um, That's so not true. Oh well, I still feel that way, which is I think a good, a better place to be in. But um, yeah, the first three months were brutal. I remember that we had to had to get about an hour and a half to get home each time. We're finishing at four in the morning, and I'd have to walk across Blackfriars Bridge to get the seventy six up to Dalton. And so we only came every forty minutes. If you just missed it, you'd be at a bus stop by yourself. And honestly, it was the first two weeks I could like hit the bridge and just start crying. <laughs> like, yeah, I struggled big time, yeah. But then like, I felt that stupid, toxic masculinity thing where I couldn't talk to anything, anyone about it. And then I didn't want to go home or speak to anyone at home about it because then I'd be like, oh, I let people down or they weren't, you know, because it was. Or you failed in Because it way. was quite a big deal for, for someone to go from Aberdeen to work at a bar with that reputation, you know. Was it the best, was it the best bar in London at that point? Was it headed? No, but I mean, well. Uh, it was early days, you know, like it, it won some big awards anyway, but you know, it, um, it, it, it came from, you know, the company, we'd already done White Lion as a company, and like, it was very reputable to be able to go and do that. And although, like, I never came down like fanboying over it, I came down because I wanted to learn from the right people, it was, it was still a big deal, you know, and I, I felt that sort of support from home big time, and I still do actually, because, you know, I still work with the guys a lot um, with the Porter's brand because we're still based up there but um, it's it's actually really nice I'm sure there's a couple of people that want to see me trip over but yeah do um, you think they're wrong? <laughs> maybe I've not been nice to everyone uh, my whole uh, life uh, <laughs> I've never met anyone who doesn't like you oh god it's because I pay everyone the right money Mark. it's so not true <laughs> and, and the how we met it's worth sharing this actually yeah. how we met I was looking for bartenders for the um, Coca-Cola Signature Mixers workshop and I was really nervous, right? Because they're a big brand and not everyone likes them. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, yeah. I get a lot of hassle for working with them. Yeah, me too. I, I actually love them. I yeah. think they're amazing. Um, and they're changing, which is why I work with them. And um, I spoke to, I won't name the agency that represented you at the time about bringing you in and uh, they were just so up their own ass about it and I always remember the conversation and I said, I said well, what are you planning on doing with them I said well I'm gonna do this 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 and then at lunchtime I'm kicking them out I'm giving them 20 pounds in cash at a brown envelope and I'm gonna go and get them to find some new flavors and uh, you sat in the pub and drank but that doesn't matter to me at all the point yeah, was I mean, new flavors I'm consistent mate. it's new yeah, flavors yeah, yeah. I get it so and, and I, I just remember this conversation that went 
he is the best bartender in the world. You cannot do that. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, I know. And I thought, I don't think he's like that. So I managed to get your number somehow yeah. and ring you. And you were just so humble and went, that sounds fucking amazing. I'm in. And I think, I mean, you are one of the best bartenders in the world. It's working in one of the best bars. But that doesn't mean you're not normal, does it? No, and I th- there's a massive perception about that sort of thing, you know? Like, we're, we're all just pretty regular people, and that's kind of what's a little different between the, the bar world and some of the other, like, sort of areas of hospitality is there's still, like, almost prestigious people that work in prestigious restaurants, you know? Whereas bars, like, it's a bunch of misfits that came together creatively, <laughs> and we just ended up, like, accidentally refining it a lot, you know? But like when you look at cocktail culture it was still a bunch of trash bags that wanted to like get involved you know like we were all just wanting to go out and get pissed and then like kind of were creative people or outcasts or so like even your high tier people that even do like high end things these days like they're yeah they're all very normal but well, I agree and you are one of the most humble people I've ever worked with which is a, a joy oh, a, a, no I mean it it's a joy but what I really love about it really love about it is this, this playfulness and this that, that there's lots of things there's a desire to serve which is exemplary there's an understanding that you create an atmosphere not just a drink and there's this um, there's a playfulness with flavour and um, a, a senses sensorial experience that, that you forget and, I, and I, must, I say this a lot when I started working with bartenders I thought it was people who couldn't find another job yeah, fucking wrong, man. You're philosophers, you, 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 you're psychologists, you're, in terms of mental <laughs> health, you know, you're counsellors. Like, this, yeah, this is everything, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, it's an all-encompassing sort of job. And I think a lot of it gets underplayed, of course, by wider society, but I'm lucky because I'm part of an era where I was coming in when it was being more accepted. I mean, don't get me wrong, when it was still challenging to turn around to your parents and be like, I'm going to be a bartender now. And even working with some of the guys in America who are running like serious money being, you know, servers and whatnot, um, like, it still doesn't compute in that culture. Uh, and even, you know, you, I, I've literally told family members before, and I'm like, we just won world's best bar. Which is obviously, you know, lists are lists, and like, I don't necessarily agree with all of them, but that's still a pretty cool achievement. It's amazing. Um, and they're like, oh, that's nice. Like, what, what are you going to do next? And you're like, what, are you fucking joking? <laughs> um, what is it, what's, what, of all the things that a bartender is, what is it that you like doing the most? I guess, well, it's different nowadays because I'm, my main focus is not to be on the bars, to grow the teams and the cultures within them and make sure our operation are creative or tight. But the translation is still the same, and it's it's that difference that you can make to someone else. So if I can have an hour of your time at a bar, like I'll, I'll flip your day around. You're having a good day, or you're having an even better day. You're having a shit day. Do you know that? And that kind of gratification that comes from someone try having and, a positive time. Do you try and lift them if they're having a bad day, or do you do more bluesy stuff? Do you... it depends. Like, it's like there is no formula. And that's why, you know, great bartenders are great bartenders, because they realise that you can't just, like, cut and paste social interaction. Um, I mean, we've definitely all got the same shit jokes, we've definitely got, like, little techniques that we use, but um, it's it's so malleable as a a task to try and make 
a difference, you know? And it used to always be, we had this tagline within our company, you know, getting people to drink better, you know? Like, that was it. And that's been adopted by loads of brands and bars and whatever. And what we realize more recently is getting people to gather in a better way. It's a better way of looking at it. So it's that social interaction of, like having a good time and a togetherness and you can be at a bar alone the whole night six hours or something and you can still feel part of it you know so being able to curate those experiences is great and now i get the same satisfaction by guiding our teams to be better operators better people um, and achieve their dreams because we never wanted or i certainly never want people to see working with our company especially as an end of a road it's just the start of a platform to then go on to do whatever they want to do so it's my priority as the kind of director over the teams to make sure that these people have the tools that they need to do the next best thing and then when i see them being successful either internally to us or going on to do something great like that's that's what gives me my kicks these days you know that's really interesting mm. what's your shadow where's the where's the dark side of alex mm. <laughs> To find dogs. <laughs> well, like, you're, you're such a you're such a joy to be with. You're really funny. You're articulate. Your job is to help people have a better time. That's hard to keep up all the time. Yeah. What happens when when you when when, when you stop being that? When you stop doing that? Well, I mean, it's, it's not even that long ago where I had an example of, of when these things do go wrong and listen you're emotionally exhausted you might be tired right I, I can work long hours it's not that's I, I didn't realize this till quite recently but you need to take the time not to physically or even mentally rest but emotionally rest um, and you know I don't want those wake-up calls so I guess it's only now like I'm 28 now which is a fair bit to be like getting on to realize that <laughs> I've got this this issue with emotional capacity but then when when that runs out like the, the coping mechanisms are usually pretty unhealthy and I'm only really recognising that now um, and they're very typical of our industry like you just go out and you booze and you eat like overeat and you get into all sorts and that's fine but the uh, the hardest part is when I can't cope emotionally with my personal life and it's affected you know relationships I've my lack of clarity and communication and boundaries and, so you know I'm not I'm certainly not perfect at this um, but that's that's the hardest bit you know like you can literally get back from a big trip or, or whatever and literally you just get into your house the door shuts and you just burst into tears like for no reason I'm not sad I'm just no, no I understand exhausted I get this um, and yeah it's, it's good because nowadays as we said if we can talk about like mental health and whatever but listen the bar industry's still got a long way to go to there's still this toxic culture and this toxic masculinity that's stemmed from like chefing and working 100 hours a week and penning up your emotions and just fucking get on with it and there's elements of that that I definitely know I'm still guilty of adhering to um, but hopefully we can start translating that into our culture more it's really interesting so that's I mean that, that is that is, a, that, is a, that is a kitchen culture, that is a Gordon Ramsay kitchen night. Yeah, it doesn't work. That exists in the bar as well? Well, that's, it had to come from that, right? You know, because that's where the bar world essentially still came from. Um, 
and listen, like we've, we've got a huge problem with diversity in our industry anyway. We're getting a lot better. Yeah. Um, obviously, people of different, you know, ethnicities, cultures, um, and you know, obviously with different genders now, like coming together in our industry, and this is great. But like, it's still mostly white dudes, you know. Yeah. When you look at it, and that's still toxic. Like, so we are getting better, but there's still like a long way to go and also people need to recognise the root cause of mental health as well as like just it's great that we're talking about it but then then we're talking about like I'm depressed and I need to speak to someone or I'm counselling I'm doing yoga or whatever but then I'm still going to work and being expected to work 65 hours a week and not complain about it and I'm giving myself emotionally to all these guests I'm adhering to these really straining mental standards of perfection like and it's like okay well Something maybe, maybe they're linked, guys. Something's gonna get. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I was going to come to this in a second, um, and it's a question that you ask of counsellors or therapists. That, that every every good therapist needs a therapist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you pick up, you're, you're like a sponge, and you're soaking up, and you're not giving advice, but you're no. you're you're reflecting all the time. Yeah. Who do you then go and talk to? Well, see. Yeah, therapist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's happened a bunch over, well, this year especially has been pretty challenging. I had a very, you know, difficult start to my year in my personal life. So, you know, I, I, I saw someone for a bit then, but, you know, it became apparent to me literally a couple of weeks ago where I'm like, okay, like, I actually need to go probably see someone to offload my professional stuff, which has never been something I considered before, you know, because I realised that we're taking a lot of, of things on from people, especially your teams, and there's a lot of pressures everywhere, and it's like, you, you, can't, you can't necessarily send that out with your colleague, because although they're your best mates in your family, like, you know, if I sit, turn around to Ryan, I'm like, dude, I've got all this on me, like, that's just me putting on to him as well, although I think Ryan might have no emotions, but that's, that's <laughs> some of the thing, but... Uh, but yeah. you can only, I always remember Cracker Jack, the TV show Cracker yeah, Jack, yeah, yeah. when you've got a hold of the toys and you've got cabbages on there as well, right? <laughs> you, your arms are only so big, right? Yeah. Your heart is only so big and, you, and, your, and your empathy and your love is only so big. And at some point, you've got to give somebody else a cabbage to hold, yeah, yeah, but it's still a fucking cabbage. Yeah. And they've got to then hold a cabbage. And I've often, I've often thought, you know, we, yes, we're better at talking about it, but... How do we how do we help the helpless? Because it's such a giving profession. Service, in its true sense of the word, is built into what into what you do. Who serves the server? Who helps the helper? And it's really refreshing, Alex, to hear you talking about therapy and counselling in this way. And yet, it's really sad that we that we that it's become this. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen. There's also a stigma. It used to be. You know, you see these like memes on the internet, and it's like baby boomers would be ashamed of like going to therapy, and then nowadays like millennials are going like, you'll never believe what my therapist told me yesterday, but they're in the pub having a drink with their mate, and like, although it's it's kind of funny, like it, it's a little healthier to realise that like mental health is something that needs treated, yeah, and like I don't necessarily believe like having like anxiety or emotional exhaustion or anything is is the disease that perhaps depression is. It's, it frustrates me when people are separated too. But like, life to me is about design, right? Everything has to be mapped out um, and it has a logical 
kind of path to follow, right? And like, your brain is, is no different. Like, you're having these problems, use the facility available to you to get through it. It's not like you have a headache to get paracetamol, or you know, like you're thirsty, you drink water. Like, you're not feeling very good, you just offload on a therapist. Like, as such, you know. And, and as long as we start seeing it in a more practical manner, then people will stop having such a stigma about it. I love that, but I also love what you said a minute ago that it's great that we're talking about it, but we're not getting to the root cause. And, and something you just said, then if you've got a headache, have a paracetamol or work out what's giving you a headache. Yeah, I mean, like, exactly. So, like, I'm already skimming over that. And as I say, like, I'm on this journey with everyone else, but um, I think the start is just to be like pragmatic about everything. Like, I do not feel good. There is a solution. I'm going to use it. That's a healthy one. That's not just like, you know, loads of booze and drugs and food and whatever. Like, that's not healthy, but that's how people have been coping with it, especially in our industry for so long. So, you know, like, it's, it's pretty tragic that there's like a good couple of suicides a year in both chefs and buyers now, you know? Really? Yeah. But it feels like, it's, it feels like, the good news is it feels like it's changing to me. It feels yeah. like the conversation, you know, what comes first is denial. Yeah. And then after denial, we, 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 we grudgingly accept it and, and, and we look at dealing with the symptoms. And it's definitely, to me, it looks like we're shifting over into dealing with the, with the causes of that, not just in bartending. Yeah, yeah. I actually think bartenders are some of the most, most of the ones I've met, some of the most open, creative, amazing people I've ever, ever spent time with. And it's an, this work I've been doing recently with, with my clients has been an utter joy. And it's straight, just to round this up, because we're nearly at 45 minutes, and I could talk to you all day. <laughs> yeah, no, no way. To round this up, there's this whole this whole thing with you around creating good times so so creating a space for people to express themselves have fun the band the, the, the music it's all around creativity but it's all around giving that, that, that good, that good time. Yeah. the bar is all around creativity but it's around giving that good time the drinks brand quarters and um, glass house it's all around creating something and then and then Given, given that that, that, that that away, and I can I can see that, and I'm wondering, as a little boy, as a really little boy, was that in you then? Were you were you were you like that then? Were you? I was like on my own, so I was like eight. So, um, and I think I just it, it probably starts to be the fact that I didn't have a lot of mates, I didn't fit in, so eventually probably one of your coping mechanisms is to try and make other people happy. Um, and then by that way you would then gain like acceptance or approval. So it definitely stems from all that. But then I think rather than that being like that root cause of like needing to please people to be then validated, like once I kind of developed more of a sense of empathy, like if I've helped someone have a good time and like I can empathize with their whole situation then I'm having a good time as well, you know? So that's the way I kind of translate it now, but there's definitely like a need to like, please and be validated and in a, that stems in a really unhealthy part of my career. And I don't need that anymore, you know? It's brilliant. And, and we, we, all, we all have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I guess you, you just nailed it. The unhealthy side of that is look at me, 
accept me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the, and, and the healthy side of that is all around accept me for, for, for what I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to change for you to like yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And I get that from you. You're like uncompromisingly <laughs> Alex. And utterly, <laughs> utterly loved. Utterly loved. No one has ever said anything but amazing things I can about give, you. I can give you a list of people that might not. Oh, but, they, yeah. they will exist. Right? <laughs> yeah. You are not for everyone. You are just for the sexy people, as my, my friend James Victoria says. And it's the truth. Um, and whatever you do with porters and whatever you do with glasshouse whiskey is going to be incredibly successful. And just to finish off, because I'm intrigued by your relationship with Ryan, you love, you have Lion tattooed on your wrist. Yeah. And I'm guessing Ryan doesn't. No, he does not. Ryan doesn't have any tattoos. Was, I actually, it was funny because I, I got that tattoo and I, I left the company very shortly for a couple of months, like shortly after getting it. But I'm, I'm so. Like, there's no one else in the world I want to work for in bias, you know? Like, it, and not only nowadays because I, I believe in his vision, and it's not like I believe in everything he does or says, but uh, he's my best mate, essentially, and everything that we do together feels right, you know? So, like, whilst I, I just don't have that sort of repertoire with any other company or human being, so it's just really natural and easy. I'm like, right, that's my ethos. I actually recently said to him, I was like, the one thing is I'll, I'll never open my own bar or company, so in theory I'll never leave Mr. Lyon. And like, that's a pretty weird thing to feel at 28, but I don't think I will. Well, yes and no, it feels like love. I don't mean that in a, <laughs> I don't I don't mean that in a sexual way. No, no. Um, I mean, he's, he's a nice guy and all, but, but, <laughs> but it feels, you know, it's actually really heartwarming to hear you say that. Yeah. I think find someone so aligned or to, to work with someone who's so aligned as you and he trusts you implicitly I know and you trust Sometimes. him <laughs> you trust him it's actually quite a beautiful thing Alex yeah it's nice yeah I'm very lucky so what do you think your old man would say now? I he would just laugh it's like uh, how ridiculous my life's become but yeah yeah that's all we did was laugh yeah, yeah. but he was proud wasn't he? yeah 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 he was um, so I was, I was lucky in that respect but yeah. And you've channeled your mum's rebelliousness because that's where it's come from, hasn't well, it? Well, yeah, I mean, she was pretty straight-laced in the middle part of her life, but she's getting back to her old ways now. Is she turning into an old hippie? Yeah, yeah, she's getting there. Yeah, yeah. Fucking brilliant. Alex Lawrence, you are a diamond. I've really, really enjoyed that. Thanks, mate. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, there's so much in there, from, from kind of being an outsider to needing to move away to find who you are to um, understanding sort of senses and play and, and, and how that can make the world a, a better place. Um, what I've learned over the years, I've, I've been working with bartenders now for probably two or three years, and I always felt it was something that you went into because, well, because, you, because you, you were good at it and because you maybe didn't have any other plans. And, and what I've realised is that's utterly wrong. Bartenders conduct emotion and mix feelings as much as they mix liquids. They have a difference between a great night out and an average night out, a, a great drink and an average drink. And they, they're philosophers, they're therapists, they're counsellors, they're they're conducting emotions and I've and I've realized over the years that the skills they have kind of hold people together and, and if you go back to kind of like classic 
TV representations of bars, things like Cheers, even things like Early Doors, one of the, my favourite sitcoms, British sitcom, um, set in um, in a Manchester bar over two series written by um, written by Craig uh, Craig Cash. Craig Cash is that right? I think that's his name. I'm certain it is. Um, I'll get someone to check that while I'm while I'm talking. Um, then the magic is the emotion. It's the community and the feeling that that are, that are created by a group of disparate people coming together at one point in time and one point in geography. And I, I, I really understand how smart and focused bartenders need to be. And I, I'll always remember I went to um, I went to a, a bar once. I was in, went to Chicago for um, for an event, and I, I got I, I was stupid. It was actually the day that I was speaking, or, or the weekend I was speaking at, at the Do Lectures, and I um, I trying to save a bit of money and travelling early. And and consequently, I ended up getting there two days early and having to leave the do lectures literally after I spoke. I mean, to be fair to me, I didn't realise I was speaking until like three days before. Um, and so it's it's fair enough that I, that I did that. But I had all this time to kill. And I went to this bar, um, as I said, in Chicago. And I wandered in and it was like, like the dream bar. There, there was a couple of guys sat at the bar. Very few women in the bar, to be fair. Um... And I sat down next to this one chap and there was a game on. Chicago Bears were playing and I sat and watched it. I used to play American football very briefly. Really loved it, but it wasn't to be. And uh, I sat chatting to this guy about, about the football and what he was doing. And he was hiding from... He was actually... <laughs> He was actually hiding. His wife was shopping in Bloomingdale's and he just did not want to go in there. So he was turning his turned his phone off and was sat there drinking drinking a beer and watching the game. And um and then the barman asked me if I wanted a Chicago pizza. And now in the UK, Chicago pizza is a big fat doughy numbers with cheese on top, whereas a real Chicago pizza is a it's almost like a pie, like a cheese pie. I I was eating dairy back then. And I ordered a beer and I ordered a pizza and I ordered American conversation and I got all three and the bartender came and joined in and we spent two hours watching this game talking about something and nothing and they lifted my feelings from from one of kind of missing out because I left the do lectures as soon as I'd spoken I'd missed that bit afterwards where everyone says nice things about you and I got on a plane and I'd flown to a city that I didn't know to a country I didn't know to, to a job that actually wasn't a real not you know contract that wasn't a real contract that I really didn't want to be there for and within two hours I just felt utterly at home and that's the magic that you can create in a bar Alex is astonishing at that there are a handful I'm working with probably six incredible bartenders um, male female based in London one based in Birmingham I'm I'm really lucky at the moment to be spending time with these people and and hopefully you've got a hint of sort of the magic that, that they can create and, and hopefully you'll you know spend a little bit more time talking to um, people behind bars rather than just getting frustrated that they're not serving you fast enough Friday night service Saturday night service always difficult go in when it's not like that because there are lessons and there are um, conversations that, that you wouldn't otherwise have um, these people spend time with 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 everyone and 
it's a bit like a, a, a barber or a hairdresser or a taxi driver. Um, they sort of soak up atmosphere. They soak up, they soak up viewpoints that maybe you wouldn't normally get exposed to. So, um, look, philosophically, bartenders are ace. Practically, they're ace. Alex is an exception in all of those areas. And one just, just utterly lovely man. Whatever he goes on to do, he won't be in service for long because he'll do other things. Will be will be alarmingly successful. I I just know it. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for um taking the time to subscribe or download or whatever it, it may be. I really really appreciate it. Any feedback, please let me know. Mark at thisisape.co.uk. If you know anybody that you think might be interested, if you maybe you're but you're interested and you want to get involved and and we'll do a podcast. Uh, get in touch. Honestly, I'm super open to to all that sort of stuff. And whatever you're doing today, um, have a really, really great day. Thank you.